I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO of the global ebook store Rakuten Kobo. We have a regular procession of authors who visit the Kobo offices. While they're here, I get a chance to learn a bit about their careers, creative process, and their reading and writing lives. And hopefully, you will too. Welcome to Kobo in Conversation. I'm Michael Tamblin, CEO of Rakuten Kobo. Today in our studio, my guest is Mark Sakamoto. Mark is one of those people who makes you wonder what you've been doing with your life. He is an author, lawyer, a political advisor, a software executive, and the author of Forgiveness, A Gift from My Grandparents, published by HarperCollins Canada and the winner of the CBC Canada Reads competition. Mark, welcome to Kobo. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. With each of our guests, we ask you to tell us about three books. The book that had the biggest influence on you in childhood, the book that was most formative for you as a writer, and the books that were central to the writing of your current book. And along the way, we'll be talking about your book, Forgiveness, A Gift of My Grandparents. Your book, Forgiveness, begins and in some ways ends with your grandparents. Your father's family, the Sakamoto's, were interned and then forcibly relocated from Vancouver at the beginning of the Second World War. Can you introduce us to them? Sure, I'd love to. I love talking about my grandparents. Mitsue and Hideo were both Canadian citizens. They were born in Canada, and they lived very rich cultural lives in Vancouver. They were steeped in their surroundings. And, you know, my grandmother was well-educated, post-secondary. They were really living a, a wonderful life. And that life was ripped out from underneath them. Hate came wrapped in the flag, as it always does. It's like the oldest trick in the book. And the Canadian government ethnically cleansed all 21,000 Japanese Canadians, forcibly moved them. You know, I don't use those words lightly. I'm literally quoting, you know, the Geneva articles. So it was a really horrendous act that they lived through. And they end up in Medicine Hat, Alberta. They do. Tell me a bit about their life there. They were, quote-unquote, free to leave in 1945, but their real war wasn't anymore with the Canadian government. It was a war of poverty. They had no money. Everything was taken from them. And so they had to stay in Coaldale, which is where they were first sent to a sugar beet farm in, in Coaldale, until 1948. Finally, they had uh, saved up enough money to move to Medicine Hat, where they started vegetable farming. And they didn't know a lick about vegetable farming, but they just had to survive. And so years later, after they've made a home there, they're the grandparents to a young Mark <laughs> Sakamoto. <laughs> so tell us in that context about the most formative book of your childhood. My most formative book was a Kingfisher map and geography book. And I take a second to unpack that because your audience is probably thinking, what the heck is this guy talking about? My grandpa Sakamoto Hideo uh, was raised in Japan. So he was born in Canada, but he was shipped back to the homeland and, and, and raised. When he graduated high school, he moved back to Canada and worked in a lumber camp, as most Japanese men did. He had very broken English. And he was separated from his family in some meaningful ways because of that language barrier. And my grandmother, Mitsue, was very cognizant of that. So she went to the bookstore in Medicine Hat, Alberta, and bought that book. And across the pages of that book was where my grandfather and I really came to know each other and love each other. And I'm getting a little emotional all of a sudden because I'm remembering my grandfather, but also I'm remembering the power of the book, not that book, the book, and words committed to paper or, or digitally. And that's really why that's my, the formative book in my life. What did those flags and countries mean for him? He was an amateur historian. He was a really, really smart dude, which, you know, because of the circumstances of his life, he was never really able to 
exercise that in ways that he could have if he were living in Japan. And so we would go through those books and he would talk in still in broken English, but talk about, you know, Brasilia being the capital of Brazil and how it's a new city and they were architecturally doing things interesting there. And what an astonishing thing to be able to converse with your grandfather in that way at such an early age. Where would he be reading this book to you? Always the living, his living room. I used to feign sickness as a kid. Instead of, you know, being in grade two class, I could be down at my grandma's house eating miso soup and watching ninja movies with my grandpa. She'd roll out a tatami mat in front of their TV, and uh, that's where we'd spend a day. They all sort of, they both kind of conspired to let me do that. So we would sit in, in their living room and drink green tea and eat sembe and go through that Kingfisher book. As a young person, when did you start to get a sense of their story, Mm -hmm. how they'd gotten there and what had happened to them? Mm -hmm. Was it spoken of? I was kind of that precocious grandkid that I loved history in large part because of the book that I was just talking about. But I would ask, most Japanese Canadians, like most vets as well, really didn't speak that much of it. Your Japanese Canadian audiences would uh, know these words very well, shigataganai. They would just say, shigataganai, you can't do anything about it. You have to just move on. And so they would indulge me with the skeleton of their story, but I was never empathetic to it. I knew the dates, I knew the times, I knew the surrounding, but I, I didn't know how they felt. And that's really the, obviously the most important part of the story. And it wasn't until, you know, HarperCollins was kind enough to offer me uh, a book deal where I really started to get into the guts of how they felt. And, you know, that cliche, the devil is in the details. Like I saw the devil everywhere. And so I, I'm very grateful that they, you know, opened up at such a late stage in their life to really let me in to their pain during those years. And to pick up another thread in the book, your maternal grandfather was from the Magdalene Islands in the middle of the Gulf of St. Lawrence. He volunteered in the Second World War and was sent to Hong Kong. Can you tell us a bit about what happened then? Yeah. So Ralph Augustus McLean, who I'm, I'm just thrilled to be able to say is still with us. He's 95. He's sharp as a tack. He's blind as a pat, but he's sharp as a tack. <laughs> and he, um, he lived a pretty hard scrabble life. His father was an angry man, a drunkard, uh, an abusive drunk. So he looked to the sea as an escape, and he found it in war. And he, like most boys his age, wanted to go serve, wanted to go fight in Europe. And he was sent to Hong Kong, as you mentioned. And so Hong Kong fell soon after uh, Pearl Harbor. Pearl Harbor was a a sweep, a multi-pronged sweep of Asia by by Japanese forces. And he was captured three weeks after landing on Hong Kong, an island he didn't know even existed, probably a few months prior to landing there. And, you know, what he lived through, so 1,975 men went, landed on Hong Kong. About 1,000 died, 1,050 died. And the ones that lived would be forgiven for feeling like they were the unlucky ones. What they lived through was was a depravity that even still having spent so much time with it, I wonder if I, even still I appreciate it as much as, you know, that it was just a horrific experience. One of the things you mentioned in the book was that even as they were being sent, those who sent them knew that it was a lost cause or suspected it was a lost cause. Yeah, there's a great historical account of Winston Churchill, the great Winston Churchill, looking, gathering his war cabinet and looking over, kind of stewing over a map of Asia. And he was looking at the British Empire and what could be salvageable given this multi-pronged attack that they knew was coming. And he 
chomping on his cigar, pointed to Hong Kong and said, this is no good. And it was no good because he had about, uh, you know, 1,300, 12,000 men, Scottish, East Indian, English. And he just knew that 50,000 hardened Japanese soldiers with air coverage, with tanks, with Navy, they didn't stand a chance. And Canada wanted to sort of show the motherland that, that we could serve as well. And so we sent, we sent our 19... 175 boys and the casualty rate of Hong Kong was 100%. How you calculate that is all 14,000 men either died or were captured. The worst activity in, in Canadian military history, I mean, from a casualty rate perspective, is terrible. Your grandfather survives an unendurable experience. As we were talking about before, did he ever speak about it at all? Yeah, again, similarly, when I was out golfing or fishing with my grandpa, I would ask because I, I knew the story and I, I knew the history. But again, I, you know, I, I looked at his war years as a kid as if I was looking at a map, you know, I, oh, the Japanese forces would come in from here and the Navy was there and almost like, you know, those little, those little army, those little green army men. That's how I was thinking about it. And again, he would, he would open up a little bit. But he would never open up the horror. And, and he wouldn't because it hurt him so damn much to talk about it. He also didn't want to hurt us hearing about how his friends were brutally murdered or starved. You know, I, I think he just sort of thought, well, there's no good in it. Years later, you leave Alberta, you become a lawyer, you work in politics, you work in business. All the way along, were you a writer throughout, or was there a point where you started? I was curious throughout. I mean, to go through everything that you just said, which on the other end of it seems sort of surreal, I think the most important thing that a writer is, is curious. And so I think at my core, I was always a writer. And I would write, along the way, I would write essays in whatever capacity, whatever hat I was wearing at the time. But it really wasn't until writing a Globe and Mail article, a Facts and Arguments essay, about the two sides of my family, where I, I really thought, you know what, they're in their 90s now. And maybe it's just for me, maybe it's just for my family so that my kids know what they're made of, you know. But I really wanted to commit their stories to paper and, and share it. So this brings us to our second title. Tell me a bit about the book that had the most influence on you as you were becoming a writer. You know, I've always really been drawn to family stories, familial love stories. And you mentioned that I had worked in politics, and I worked very closely with Michael Ignatieff, who has written a book or two in his day. And so he was extreme. I mean, politics had wrapped up for him, and... You know, there was no, you know, he didn't need to, to, to sort of help me out, but he really kind of took me under his wing. Not about my story itself. We never really talked about the guts of my story, but just the profession of writing. So I really looked to Scar Tissue, which is his recount, his familial tale of his mother's descent into dementia and what that did to him and his relationships to his family. That became very important to me because the essay that I just referenced was basically a love letter to my grandparents. But you can't spend time with a theme like forgiveness without it washing across your shores. And so as my own story and my brother's story and my father and my mother's story started to seep into the actual book, I needed some goalposts, some cautionary tales around how to maintain your own truth when you're talking about your 
dear loved ones, but doing so hopefully in a way that's respectful and uh, to them. And so, you know, I worked some of this out with Michael and with scar tissue as he sort of talked about his mom and, and his brother Andrew in particular and how the book really impacted his own personal life. Michael Ignatieff has plenty of nonfiction in his bibliography, Blood and Belonging, The Rights Revolution. Yeah. Forgiveness is nonfiction. You chose Scar Tissue, which is one of his works of fiction. Was there a possibility of this being fiction instead of nonfiction? If you were to look at my the contract that I signed with HarperCollins, it would be basically a blow up of my essay and just my grandparents. I was nowhere in this contract. My dad was nowhere in this contract. My dear mom who passed away of alcoholism was nowhere in this contract. As I was doing research, as soon as I signed the agreement, I put on my legal hat. I dove into the 20s and 30s and 40s and I was really living there. But every time I sat in front of my word processor, I was in the 80s and I was in the 90s. I was with my mom and I kind of freaked out. I was kind of like, shoot, I'm writing a different book. And so I met my editor. I'll never forget it. Rose petals were falling on us. Uh, we were in the park and I was bawling because I was opening up about my mom, who I'd never really done before. But I had to explain to Jim Gifford, my editor, that I'm writing about my mom and it's not the same book. And he was so brilliant. He just sort of said, you know, Mark, just get it out flush it out. It might be a different book. It might not be a book. It might be a fictional book to, to loop back to your actual question. So in a way it might have been, but I wanted to commit the story to paper truthfully using real names. I know, you know, scar tissue, uh, you know, is fiction. It's life imitating art, but I wanted to commit it factually to begin with. And then we did pivot and Jim helped me sort of weave the two stories together. But there was a point early on where it may have gone fictional. Your grandparents were so affected by war, by politics, and by the decisions that governments make. Was that one of the things that drew you towards politics? <sighs> yeah, you know, I, it cannot have drawn me there, I think, particularly around things like the Charter of Rights, you know, legal instruments that didn't exist when my... Japanese grandparents were being brutalized by the government. You know, the, the funny thing about this book and this, you know, wonderful example of why this country is so darn great is because, you know, in only two generations, the same rooms, Mackenzie King's war room, as an example, where those decisions were made that caused great injury to my family, a few decades later, there I am, a participant a participant that's, you know, still in that group of seven that's trying to get this guy elected to be the prime minister, the highest office in the land. So that says something about, you know, what's so darn magical about this country and why it is the best place on earth, because it allows and facilitates rejuvenation. When you were first starting the book, which came first, sitting down with your grandparents and getting their stories out, or the research that sat around it. Yeah, it was them. It was all them, man. Like, you know, really some of the most sacred days and nights of my life. I bought a camcorder, got on a plane, flew to Calgary, and for a week just sat at my grandpa McLean's kitchen table. And man, that guy would go, like we would start, he'd cook me a, a soft boiled egg, you know, eight o'clock in the morning, we'd have Scottish breakfast, Scottish breakfast tea, and we just get going. I mean, we were we were talking at nine o'clock, 
And, you know, there were a couple of nights where I turned off the lamp in a spare bedroom at like 1.30 in the morning. Now, we'd take breaks and we'd play chess and he'd have a nap and all that sort of stuff. But that's incredible. And similarly, I, you know, finished that, got in the rental car, drove down the number one highway and did the same with my grandma. It wasn't Scottish breakfast tea. It was matcha. But the time that they gave me and offered me was really incredible. And then I pivoted to the textbooks and the history books. And, you know, I started by saying it was them. It was always them to answer your question, because sometimes the two didn't match. And I always sided with my grandparents because it was their story. And that's how they remembered it. And that's where I planted my flag. Did the stories come easily? The stories, what was so interesting is on both, for both Mitsue and Ralph, they were perplexed at why anybody would give a damn about their lives. What was so special about their lives? They had no, there was such humility that I don't even think that they ever really comprehended the amount of love and energy that it took in their own hearts to turn what, you know, we're in a very black room right now for soundproofing and and they would be forgiven if that's where their heart stayed, this black little heart, right? And they didn't. They let the light shine in. And so I think they came to this journey with surprise. And then as we got going, they started to really get into the details. And once they started to open up, it was like a floodgate. And the details that they remembered were shocking to me. And some of the major things that I had no idea happened, you know, I I learned about for the first time. I think in some ways our entire family learned about for the first time. And lo and behold, he was like 92, you know, so so I'm glad we got it. So having gathered that, as you say, you go into lawyer mode and then start the deep digging on historical research, which were the books that you found yourself coming back to as you were writing Forgiveness? Ken Adachi wrote the seminal, I think, account of Japanese Canadians' treatment during the Second World War. It was called The Enemy That Never Was, which is a brilliant title because all heads of the Canadian military and security regime testified in Senate saying, there is no Japanese Canadian threat. It's 1943. 1942, the Battle of Midway decimated the Japanese Navy. If Japanese forces were coming over, they were doing it in rowboats. There's no invasion coming. And the RCMP similarly said, listen, we've been watching these 21,000 people extremely closely. We haven't arrested a damn one of them, and we're not going to. These folks are through and through loyal citizens. They are Canadians. What we're contemplating here is atrocious. And that was all on the record. Those are Hansard notes, you know, those are in the archives. And then on the Canadian POW side, Professor Greenfield wrote a really wonderful account called The Damned, the Canadians at the Battle of Hong Kong and the POW Experience, uh, 41 through 45. And, you know, it was really interesting. Uh, In terms of both books, there was a part of me that thought in my own book, that I would have to decide who had it worse. You know, given these two historical accounts, who had it worse? And the beautiful thing is I sort of went through their own journey, Ralph and Mitsue's journey, as they came to know each other. You know, they never measured each other's injury. They knew that there was no good in that. And they both just felt empathy for each other and what they went through. So, you know, that's sort of where my story ended. I never had to weigh each other's history. One of the things I find 
so exceptional about forgiveness is that you balance the historical and the personal so well. To understand the Sakamoto family, we have to learn about the racism that gripped British Columbia in the run-up to the war. And to understand what Ralph McLean survived, we need a window into the experience of Canadian POWs in Hong Kong and Japan. But you never let the historical overpower their personal stories. Was that a hard balance to strike? Yeah. Thank you for that, first off. I don't think so, because I always, I never wanted to bury the lead. And the lead, I felt, was these two people's hearts. What they, I think you're absolutely right, I had to sort of paint the picture of what was happening, why it was happening, to get a sense as to work your way back down to what really is at the core of the story, which is how two hearts on two sides of the equation and the world, quite frankly, could be so similar. What was it about their capacity to heal that has brought me into this world? And so I always wanted to share that light because subsequent to me coming into this world, life threw me on the mat. And there's nothing interesting in that. Like if you haven't already, you're going to fall down. I'm going to fall down probably several times. All of your audience is going to fall down. There's nothing special about that, but it's getting up and getting up in a manner that you can go on and be hopeful and loving. And they were able to do that. And when I was on the mat, I had these two lighthouses, but lots of folks don't. (laughs) And so I really, you know, the whole point is hopefully their story gets into, you know, the hands of the folks that don't have those lighthouses and they can be helped in some way. Forgiveness is filled with these sharp contrasts of families staying together against all odds, families coming apart, Canadians going off to war to defend rights, Canadians with the stroke of a pen taking rights away, and always this sense of finding life on the other side of dark moments, as you say. What did forgiveness mean to your mother's dad? As the war was winding up, the guards sort of just left the POW camps and, you know, probably just, you know, burned their uniforms and tried to like, you know, dissolve into the fabric of Japanese society. And so the Marines with heavy bombers, instead of dropping bombs, they dropped barrels of food, medicine, and the men went crazy to get it. You know, I mean, you can imagine how you're starved. You're literally starved. You, ha- you, you have diphtheria. You know you need the shots. And they would attack these bins like the madmen that they were and the men in need that they were. And my grandpa, Ralph, you know, he grabbed a little bit of food. But as all the boys were grabbing food, he grabbed a Bible. And, you know, in that Bible, he found a way out. And he found a way out to a brighter, more hopeful future. I think he knew instinctively that when he left this, at the time, this godforsaken island and this godforsaken POW camp, if he didn't have something in his corner, and for him it was his god, he was doomed. The war was going to continue. It was going to kill him. I think he just instinctively knew that. And so for him, his religion, his faith was his way out. And he still has an abiding, uh, abiding uh, faith. And it's carried him through a lot. It's carried him through those early days. I know it carried him through. They didn't know what post-traumatic stress disorder was at the time. He just knew he was crawling into his bed at three o'clock in the afternoon in a fetal position and crying for three days. He didn't know what, what even to do about it. So he prayed. You know, he prayed hard. And that faith did get him through. And similarly, at the end of the war, your 
father's parents are, as you say, stranded in Alberta, unable to get back to the homes and the businesses that they've lost. What did forgiveness mean for them? It was more familial than faith-based. They wanted to ensure that their children did not suffer the same kind of injury that they did. I think that what they really understood was if they didn't cleanse their hearts of losing everything and having to start all over, if they kept that resentment on their shoulders, they'd pass that weight on. It would be on my dad's shoulders. It would be on my uncle's shoulders and my auntie's shoulders. And that was a weight and a burden that they knew if they passed it on, they would be ruining their kids' lives. Like kind of full stop. They'd just be ruining their lives. How could you grow up in a country where you feel like you're the enemy, as my grandparents were made to feel? So thank goodness, you know, they offered my dad and his siblings a brighter kind of normal Canadian experience. And without that, I probably just wouldn't even be here. (laughs) In the book, as you widen the scope from just your grandparents' lives to also your parents and your own, you have your own hardships in here and the struggles of your family. Is there your forgiveness in this book as well? So I really started to think about forgiveness in my own life. My eldest daughter was born at St. Joseph's and Mia was, Mia Mitsue was breech. So coming out feet first. So Jade had to have a C-section and that's a you know pretty serious operation. It happens a lot, but it's a it's an operation procedure. And so operating room, two doctors, nurses everywhere. It's busy, bustling, and then the procedure's all over, and the patient, the mom, is wheeled out, and she goes to post op immediately, and everyone disappears. And what was once a bustling room is now just dead silent, and it's me and this human. And when you lose a parent to alcoholism, it bequeaths you with guilt and anger and resentment and that all of those things are insidious because they hit you at the worst time which is the best time happiest moment of my life was in saint joe's and yet at the same time i was really pissed off because my mom wasn't there and it was so hurtful that she wasn't there and so i came to i don't think i articulated it this way at the time but i came to appreciate that my heart is this little human's emotional home for the next little while and i clearly needed to clean up some of its rooms so she could stay in there and be safe and grow up in there and you know just talking about my grandparents that's what they came to realize so i think that's where the lineage is that's where the line is between my own journey for forgiveness forgiving my mom being forgiven by my mom who was who's now passed away yeah that's the that's the line <laughs> mark sakamoto thank you for joining us Dakota. thank you very much michael it was wonderful to spend time with you that's it for this episode of kobo in conversation a podcast about books and the authors who write them to discover the books you just heard about or to follow us please visit www.kobo.com conversation this podcast is produced at the kobo audiobook studios here in liberty village in Toronto, Ontario, Canada.